Hello, and welcome to this teaching from Calvary Albuquerque. We're excited to hear from our special guest speaker, Lee Strobel, who is an award-winning journalist and formal legal editor at the Chicago Tribune. He is the best-selling author of nearly 20 books, including The Case for Christ. We pray that this message strengthens your faith in the Lord. If it does, we'd love to hear about it. Email us at mystory@calvaryabq.org. And if you'd like to support this ministry financially, you can give online securely at calvaryabq.org slash giving. We invite you to open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2 as Lee begins the message, The Case for Grace. So I am privileged to be here today to talk about my favorite topic, which is the grace of God. Uh, there's a story about C.S. Lewis, the great Christian writer and philosopher, who was one day walking around the halls of Oxford, and he heard some commotion coming from a room. So he opened the door, and inside were some scholars, and they were having this real lively discussion among themselves. So C.S. Lewis said, what are you all talking about? And uh, they said, well, we're trying to figure out what is unique about Christianity. And C.S. Lewis said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. And he's right. Grace is unique to Christianity. No other world religion is based on grace. Every other world religion is based on doing good works, trying to earn your way to God. It's using a Tibetan prayer wheel or going in a series of reincarnations or going on a pilgrimage or praying in a certain way or eating certain foods or whatever it is. You you go on this list of things that try to earn your way to God. And if you're lucky, maybe he'll be merciful, but a lot of people just won't make it. But Christianity is different. Christianity is based on grace, the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus purchased on the cross when he died as our substitute to pay for all of our sin. And he offers it freely as a gift of grace. It is the centerpiece of Christianity. Uh, Titus 2 verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. So what is grace? How can we really define it simply? And you know, we can define grace just by using nine words. Most simple definition of grace. Grace is the favor shown by God to sinners. It's the favor shown by God to sinners. But here's what's interesting to me. When Jesus wanted to talk about grace, he didn't offer an elaborate definition. He didn't write a academic treatise with footnotes and publish it in a respected journal. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's not what he chose to do. When Jesus wanted to explain grace, he told a story, the parable of the prodigal son. And you probably know that story. It's a story about the young man who takes his inheritance early and goes to a far country and lives, you know, wildly and spends it all on wine, women, and song. And then a famine strikes and he has nothing left and he finds himself uh, slopping the pigs. And he realizes he's made a huge mistake. He was wrong. And he wants to go home and, and he's, and he's hoping if he does that, just hoping that maybe his father would treat him as a hired hand, as a hired servant. And so he comes home and we know the way the story ends. The father sees him and he runs to him and he throws his arms around him and he enfolds him back again into the family. That's the grace of God. And, and I think when Jesus used a story, he was suggesting that 
stories have an ability, unlike simple definitions, to illuminate for us grace in a fresh way. And so I was thinking, you know, if someone came up to me and said, Lee, uh, what do I need to know about the God of grace? What, What are kind of the key fundamentals that I need to know about the God of grace? You know what I think? I think I'd tell you two stories. The first story is about an orphan. And it's a story that has a very simple lesson that comes out of it. The point of the story is simply this. That God loves you. And he wants to adopt you as his son or as his daughter. So there's a true story about a woman, young woman, living in Korea during the Korean War. And she has an affair with an American soldier. And after the war, the soldier goes home and this woman is pregnant. And she gives birth to a child, a little girl. And it was clear that this was a biracial child because her hair was lighter than the other kids. It was curlier and her eyes were not shaped quite the same way. And so people knew instantly that this was a product of an illicit relationship that the mother had had. And this was um, a terrible situation in Korea after the war. Um, these children were taunted, they were ostracized, they were stigmatized. Society would just, um, was just brutal toward these children that were born out of wedlock to mothers after the Korean War. In fact, many mothers would kill their own children because the pressure, the societal abuse and uh, tauntings were, were just too much. But this woman didn't want to do that. She loved her little girl. So she raised her as best she could, and she got to be four years old. And then this woman had an opportunity to get married to a Korean farmer. But the farmer said, this little girl cannot be part of our marriage. And so the mother got down on one knee and said to her little girl, I'm going to send you to live with your uncle. Now, I don't know if her uncle really lived. I don't know if he ever existed. Uh, It was very common for mothers in that day to abandon their children in uh, train stations. And she took the little girl to the train station, put her on a train, and at the end of the line, when she got off the train, all by herself, little four-year-old girl, there was no uncle. And so if you can imagine, if you ever had a four-year-old child or, you know, a four-year-old grandchild, can you imagine this little girl found herself abandoned on the streets and she lived that way for two years and she wasn't alone there were other kids just the packs of these kids who had also been abandoned by their families and they would sleep under bridges and and in abandoned buildings and um, uh, in caves and they would eat whatever they could they would steal stuff from farmers fields they would catch locusts and let them dry in the sun and they'd wear them around their waist um, uh, with, with straw, they put the straw through their head and, and string around their waist to dry, and then they would eat those. And, and this little girl learned to catch mice when they would come out of the mouse hole. She would catch them, and she would eat the whole thing, skin, ears, tail, everything. Um, and she was terribly abused by people who encountered her. They tried to kill her. They assaulted her. Um, and they called her the worst word in the Korean language, tookie which meant alien devil. I mean, you, you couldn't call anybody anything worse in that culture in that day. 
And so here's this little girl, four years old, living on the streets, just barely surviving. And it didn't take her long to begin to draw some conclusions about herself based on the way that she was being treated by that culture. Years later, she said, when you hear what you are when you're a little child, day after day, you begin to believe that about yourself. I believe that anyone could do whatever they wanted to me physically because I wasn't a person. I was inhuman. I was dirty. I was unclean. I had no name. She couldn't even remember the name her mother had given her. I had no name. I had no identity. I had no family. I had no future. And I hated myself. For two years, she lived that way. And then a cholera epidemic broke out and she got deathly ill. And she saw a heap of trash. And she crawled up on top of the heap of trash to die. But at that time, there was a woman. She was from Sweden. She was a nurse. And she had been brought in by World Vision to start an orphanage in that community. And she's walking by and she sees this little girl who's dying on this heap of trash. But there was nothing she could do because her assignment was to find the babies who had been abandoned. Because people will adopt babies. They haven't gone through the abuse, the suffering, the medical issues, and so forth, that the older kids, nobody adopts the older kids. But the younger babies, yes, they can be adopted. And so her job was to find all the babies. Well, she saw this little girl who by then is six years old. She knew she couldn't do anything for her. So as much as she had compassion for her, she had to walk past. So she's walking past, and she said, as I'm walking away, it was, it was like my legs all of a sudden got really heavy, and I could barely walk. And then I heard a voice, and it was in my native language of Swedish. And the voice said, she's mine. And she said, could this be the voice of God? So she goes, and she picks up the little girl. And she takes her to the orphanage. Now, orphanage sounds like a kind of nice place. Believe me, this was a very primitive situation. I mean, the, the children slept on mats on the dirt floors. Uh, they had rags to wear. They, they, they barely um, had enough food to eat. So it was a very primitive kind of situation. And the little girl lived there for a couple of years. And then one day, word came that an American couple was going to come and adopt one of the baby boys. And so all the orphans were excited because this is a chance for one of the kids to have a future and to have a hope. So her job, because she was the oldest orphan, was to get the baby boys ready. So she gave them baths and she dressed them in the best rags they had and she pinched their little cheeks and she combed their hair and got them all set. And the next day, this American couple came. And this is what she recalls. She said, it was like Goliath had come back to life. She said, I saw that man with his huge hands lift up each baby. And I knew he loved every one of them as if they were his own. I saw tears running down his face. And I knew if they could, they would have taken the whole lot home with them. And then she said, he saw me out of the corner of his eye. Now, listen to her description of herself. She said, although I was almost nine years old and had been in the orphanage for two years, I still had dirt on my body. It was ground into my skin. 
I had lice so bad that my head was actually white. I had worms so bad in my stomach that when they got hungry, they would crawl up out of my throat. I had a lazy eye from malnutrition that just sort of flopped around in the socket. I weighed less than 30 pounds. I was a scrawny thing. I had boils all over me and scars on my face. And yet still, she said, this man came over to where she was. And he got down as low as he could, right down on his haunches. And she said, he looked me straight into my eyes. And he stretched out that enormous hand of his, and he laid it on the side of my face. And it felt so good. And it felt so right. What was he saying by that gesture? He was saying, this is the child who we want to adopt. And as she was telling me her story, it was like my mind froze on that picture. Because I thought, that is a picture, that is an image of the God of grace. The God of grace sees beyond the ugliness of our sin. The God of grace sees beyond the scars of our failures. And what does he see? He sees a soul that is made in the image of God. And he wants to Look each and every one of us in the eye. And he wants to lay his enormous hand on the side of our face. And he wants to say, I love you. And I want to adopt you as my son or as my daughter. Now you may feel like, you know, if if everybody knew, if, if everybody knew the real me. If everybody knew the secret me, if everybody knew the clandestine transgressions in my life, if if we were to display on the screens all the secret, hidden, dark, and dirty parts of our life, I'd probably be as rejected as that Korean girl was by her culture. But here's the thing. God knows all that about you. He knows all that. That's not secret to God. He knows your whole life. And yet still, he wants to adopt you. Why? Because God sees you differently than you see yourself. God looks at you through heaven's eyes. Through heaven's eyes. There was a a songwriter named Phil McHugh who wrote a song several years ago about that. It's called In Heaven's Eyes. How God sees you as opposed to the way you see yourself. And the lyrics say, in heaven's eyes, there are no losers. In heaven's eyes, no hopeless cause. Only people like you with feelings like me, amazed by the grace we can find in heaven's eyes. And because of his grace, God wants to adopt you as a son or as a daughter. And that is the first thing I would want you to know about the God of grace. But then something incredible happened with that little girl. As this man is reaching out to her, she said, she said, the hand on my face felt so good. And inside I was saying, oh, keep it up. Don't let your hand go. But nobody had ever shown that kind of affection for me before. And I didn't know how to respond. So listen to this. I yanked his hand off my face and I looked him in the eye and I spit on him. And then I spit on him a second time. And I ran away and I hid in a closet. And she's telling me this in her story, and I'm thinking, what, what are you thinking? The window of opportunity is opening up for you. The opportunity for to be adopted. The opportunity for a future and a hope. And what does she do? She slams the window shut. 
And my first reaction was, how could anybody do that? And then it hit me, wait a second. How many times have I done that with God? How many times have you done that with God? Where there's this window of opportunity that's opening in your soul, that you're feeling attracted and pulled toward God. And this window is opening. Maybe you're, you're on vacation and you're hiking in the Rocky Mountains and the grandeur and the beauty of the mountains and the sky full of stars and, and this window is opening in your soul because you want to know the one who created all of this grandeur and the window is opening but then the next day the vacation's over, you go back to work, life resumes and you never slam the window shut but you just let it slide shut over time. Or maybe your your parents took you to a Sunday school class when you were a little kid and, and, and the teacher talked about the love of God and this window is opening in your soul and you're, you, you're receptive to that. You're, something in you desires that. But at school it's not a cool thing and you get busy playing with the other kids and you just, over time, let the window of opportunity slide shut. Or you go to a wedding of a friend and they're Christians and the pastor gets up and he talks about what it's like to build a marriage relationship around Jesus Christ. And you're sitting there listening to this and something about it is attractive to you and you feel drawn toward it. And, and this window is opening in your soul. But then the wedding's over and the reception's over and life resumes and the kids are busy and blah, blah, blah. And the window just slides shut. Have you ever had that happen in your life. Friends, I can't tell you how many times when I was an atheist, that window opened in my life and I just let it slide shut. Well, let me tell you something about the God of grace. The God of grace is a lot like that Christian couple that came to adopt that little girl at the orphanage. They came back the next day. And you know what? Nobody would have blamed him if they came back and said, you know, we're going to take the easy way out. We're going to adopt a little baby who hasn't been abused, who has not suffered the, the trauma and the medical issues and the emotional issues of the older kid. No, nobody would have blamed him if they adopted a baby boy. But they came back that next day and they took that hand of that little girl. They said, this is the child who we want to adopt. And they took her by her hand and they took her home. And they named her Stephanie. And they got her the medical attention she needed and the love that she needed. And seeing the grace in the way that her parents adopted her and loved her and brought her into their family drew her to Jesus Christ. And she received Jesus as her Lord and Savior as a youngster. And they moved to Indiana where her dad was a pastor of a church. And she was valedictorian of her high school class. She was homecoming queen her senior year. And now you know what she does? She's married to a former missionary. They live up in the Pacific Northwest. And she has a ministry to young women who feel like they have no future and no hope. A lot of them don't even have dads. And she gathers him around. She says, I know you've been told there is no future. There is no hope. I want to tell you about the God of grace. He loves you. He wants to adopt you as his daughter. Let me tell you my story. And God uses her story to draw so many of these young women into relationship with God. I mean, that tells me something. 
about what the the grace of God is like. It's like adoption. In fact, the Bible uses this imagery of adoption. In Romans 8, verse 23, it says, we wait eagerly for our adoption by God. There is something in us that eagerly anticipates that moment when God adopts us as a son or daughter. One of the great theologians, J.I. Packer, put it this way. He said, of all the gifts of grace, the adoption is the highest gift. He said, to be right with God the judge, that's a good thing. But to be cared for and loved by God the Father, that is greater still. I love that. Friends, the truth is, you may have had lots of time in your life when you've allowed that window of opportunity to shut. There may have been times in your life when you have spit in the face of God. There may be times in your life when you felt the still small voice of God calling you in one direction and you turned your back and you went the other way. What you need to know today about the God of grace is that He has never turned His back on you. He's never turned His back on you. And if you ask me to tell you what you need to know about the God of grace, those are the things that I think the story of little Stephanie illuminate about what it's like. And then I tell you one more story. I tell you the story about Billy Moore. Billy Moore grew up in a poor section of Georgia. Got into trouble a lot when he was a kid. He burglaries and petty offenses, thefts, shoplifting, stuff like that. Uh, kind of an aimless kid. He joined the army to try to get his life straightened out. That didn't work. And, you know, he, he was always lamenting the fact he didn't have any money. So he was living in a little trailer, and his buddy was there, and they were getting drunk one night. And he was bemoaning the fact he didn't have any money and didn't know how to get any money. And, and his friend said to him, hey, you know, Billy, there's a guy who lives in another trailer not far from here. And he's an old guy. He's a grandpa. Um, and he doesn't believe in banks. So he keeps his money under his mattress. Billy said, really? So Billy got a gun. And Billy went and he broke into this man's trailer. And in the scuffle as this man confronted him, Billy Moore shot this man dead. And then he stole $5,600 and he fled. Well, it didn't take long for the police to figure out it was Billy Moore that committed this crime. And they broke into his trailer. They handcuffed him. They took him away. They, they put him alone in a cell. And that first night, sitting alone in this cell in the jail, the enormity of what Billy Moore had done struck home to him. And he realized, I have no future. I have no hope. There is no way out. There is an electric chair not far from here. And the day is going to come when they're going to strap me in it and they're going to kill me. Well, shortly after his arrest, a church like this down there in Georgia read in the paper about this guy who's been arrested for murder. So they had a couple from the church that said, why don't you go over to the jail and try to tell them about Jesus? So they did. They went in there. They were a little awkward about it. You know, didn't do this kind of stuff very much. And so they, they sat there with Billy and they said, Billy, you need to understand something about the God of grace. He loves you. Still. He still wants to adopt you as his son. And he wants to give you a fresh start. He wants to give you a new chance at life. 
Everybody scoffed at him. Looked at him dumbfounded. So what in the world are you talking about? I murdered a man in the commission of a felony. I'm all out of fresh starts. I don't have any hope. I don't have any future. I'm going to die in the electric chair. But this man was persistent. He said, Billy, listen, it is never too late. The God of grace loves you. He will adopt you. He will change your life. And Billy, I don't know how he's going to do it. I have no idea how he could. But I am telling you, if you give your life to Jesus Christ, he will not just change you. He will make your life count. And Billy not only heard the words of this man, but he saw grace in his face. And later Billy said, you know, nobody had ever told me before that Jesus loved me and died for me. He said, it was a love that I could feel. It was a love that I wanted. It was a love that I needed. And so Billy Moore, as hopeless of an individual as you will ever meet, flung open that window of opportunity and the sunshine of God's grace flooded his soul. He received Jesus Christ as his forgiver and leader and God began to change his life. He was baptized in a rusty old bathtub there in the jail and then he went into court. And when he went into court, he said, look, I'm a Christian now. And I got to tell you the truth. I killed that man. And he said, Billy, we know. And we find you guilty of capital murder. And we sentence you to die in the electric chair. Well, it took 16 years for that sentence to be carried out. And in the meantime, during those 16 years, Billy Moore continued to fling open the window of opportunity to the grace of God in his life and God transformed him from the inside out he went to death row where he became a model prisoner in fact the guards had a nickname for him they called him the peacemaker because before Billy Moore came to death row it was a place of despair and and violence and ugliness but one by one Billy Moore led all the other inmates to faith in Jesus Christ and he led all the guards to faith in Jesus Christ and the entire tenor the entire atmosphere the entire environment of death row took on a whole new dimension a place of hope a place of peace a place of grace and a place of love Billy took 32 correspondence courses from a Bible college He became such an effective counselor that local churches in Atlanta, when they had young people who were troubled, they would send them to death row to be counseled by Billy Moore. And when I thought about that, I thought, well, wait a second. If God can take a man in a cage awaiting execution and use his life nevertheless for eternal benefits... Can't he use your life then? Can't he use you in your family and in your neighborhood and in your community and in your state and in your nation, your world? Can't God, if he can use a man in a cage, can't he use you to make an eternal difference in the world? Of course he can. Well, finally, August of 1990 came and the Supreme Court of the United States confirmed the conviction and the sentence of Billy Moore and it was time for him to die. So they moved him to the cell outside the electric chair to wait to die where they could shave his head and his legs so they could attach the electrodes to kill him. And as he was waiting there to die, his lawyers would call him periodically. And 
I got to know some of his lawyers. I talked to him. I said, what was that like calling a man who was about to die? And they said, Lee, it was the oddest thing. We would call Billy with the intention of consoling Billy, but it was Billy who would console us. He would say, you guys doing all right? You're going to get through this okay? Are you coping with this all right? Why was he like that? Because Billy Moore was not afraid to die. Billy Moore knew this, that if God loved him so much that he adopted him as his son, that he forgave him of his sins, that he changed his life and he used him in a way that glorified God and made an eternal difference in lives, if God is willing to do that, then he could trust him. When he closed his eyes for the last time in this world and opened them in the next world, he could trust that God would take care of him. And so, as the hours ticked down to his death, something unprecedented took place. Absolutely unprecedented. So unprecedented, it made the front page the next day of the New York Times. The Georgia Pardon and Parole Board got wind of this prisoner who'd been radically transformed by Jesus Christ, who was a new man. And they decided to hold an emergency hearing while the minutes were clicking down to him being executed. And guess who came to that emergency hearing? The relatives of the victim murdered by Billy Moore. And you know what they did? They begged for his life to be spared. They said, years ago, Billy came to us and he asked us to forgive him for what he did. And we did. They said, how could we not forgive Billy Moore if God already had? The Atlantic Journal wrote an editorial about Billy Moore and they called him a saintly figure. Mother Teresa called the pardon board from India and had some very simple advice. Just do what Jesus would do. Well, the parole and pardon board had several options. They could have given Billy Moore justice. You know what justice is? Justice is when we get what we deserve. And what he deserved under the law of the state of Georgia was execution. That would have been nothing less than justice. Or they could have shown him mercy. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And they could have said, well, we're going to commute the death sentence. We're not going to kill you. We're just going to lock you up in a cage the rest of your life. That would be merciful. But they didn't do either of those things. You know what they did? They showed him grace. You know what grace is? Grace is getting what we don't deserve. And they looked out at this changed man and they said, we're going to give you grace. Not only are we going to erase the death penalty for you, but we are going to set the machinery in motion to set you free. The first time in American history that I can find that a convicted, confessed, admitted murderer was set free. Why? Because God had so radically transformed his life. And when they announced it, when the five members of the Pearl and Pard Board announced their decision, guess what happened in the room? It erupted spontaneously with people singing, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like Billy Moore. I mean, what else do you do at a moment like that but to sing the anthem of forgiven people? And guess where Billy Moore is right now? He is where he always is on Sunday morning, 
because he is now an ordained minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the God of grace. And he's an elder in a church in the town of Rome, Georgia, a church located between two public housing projects in a very poor area of town. And Billy Moore is known as a great man of prayer and compassion. And his one of his ministries is to the young men who live in those public housing projects. Young men who've told been told, you don't matter. You don't have a future. You don't have a hope. But Billy Moore gathers them around. And he says, there is a God of grace who loves you. And he wants to adopt you as, your, as his son. And he wants to change your life. And he wants to use your life in ways that as you sit here right now, you have no idea how he's going to do it. And so I'm friends with Billy now. And I remember once I was down with Billy at his little house there in Rome, Georgia. And we were sipping iced tea. And I said to him, Billy, I want to ask you something. I just want you to give me a totally honest answer. He said, what? I said, look, there's no TV cameras. There's no, I'm not taking any notes, no tape recorder. I just want to know, honestly, what was the source of this radical transformation in your life? I said, it was really the prison rehabilitation system that did it, isn't it? And he laughed. He said, no, wasn't that. I said, well, then, um, was it transcendental meditation? Could that have been it? He said, no, it wasn't that. I said, well, then, was it the psychological counseling that they gave you? And he laughed. I said, I didn't get any of that. I said, well, then it was Prozac, right? Did they give you some Prozac? Certainly they must have. He said, no, it wasn't that. And he looked at me and said, Lee, you know what it was. You know what it was. And I said to him, Billy, yes, I do. But I want to hear you say it. So Billy Moore looked at me and he said, Lee, plain and simple, it was Jesus Christ. He changed me in ways I never could have changed on my own. He gave me a reason to live. He helped me to do the right thing. He gave me a heart for other people. And he saved my soul. And as he said that, I thought, aren't those the four exact things that all of us need? Right? He gave me a reason to live. Don't you need an eternal reason to live? Don't you need some reason to live, some purpose in your life that goes beyond eating and drinking and going to bed and going to work and so forth? Yes, we all need that kind of divine purpose in our life. And he said, he helped me do the right thing. How many times do we know we shouldn't do something because it's wrong, but we do it anyway? Don't we need God to help us make the right choices in our life? And then he said, he gave me a heart for other people. How many times do we view other people as problems to be solved instead of people to be loved? And then he said, he saved my soul. He saved my soul. He adopted me as his son. It's going to take me for eternity to be with him in heaven. Ultimately, isn't that what we need? And think about this for a second. If God can forgive and adopt and change and use a man who shot a guy dead in a burglary, what sin have you committed that is worse than that? That God says, no, 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 I'm drawing the line there. No, the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous. He will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There is nothing he will not forgive you for. 
And God's grace can transform your life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. Friends, if you asked me to tell you about the God of grace, these are the things I would want you to know. He loves you. He wants to adopt you as a son or as a daughter. He wants to forgive you. He wants to change your life. And he wants to use you in ways for his glory that you can't even anticipate as you sit here today. And here's my question. Could it be that today there's a window opening in your soul? You hear the story about Sephne. You think, I would like to be adopted by a perfect father. Or you hear the story about Billy and you say... I need forgiveness. I need transformation. I need purpose in my life. And God is opening that window. Friends, my advice to you is don't just walk out of here and go have brunch and go home with the family and go to work tomorrow and just just let that window slide shut out of apathy. Don't do that. Fling it open. Let the sunshine of the grace of God fill your soul. And he will change you in ways like he changed Billy Moore. And so, would you like to meet the God of grace? Would you like to meet him personally so you can know him for now and for eternity? Let me introduce you to the God of grace. Let's just close our eyes and bow our heads. And if you want to meet the God of grace, the Bible says it's very simple. Just in your heart, God will hear you. Just in your heart, say, Father, I'm not a killer like Billy Moore, but I've sinned. I've fallen short. And I confess to you that I am a sinner. And I want to turn from that. And I want to receive in repentance and faith this free gift of your grace. Forgiveness and eternal life. Forgive me, adopt me, change me, and use me for your glory so that we can be reconciled forever and ever and ever through Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this special service from Calvary Albuquerque featuring our guest speaker, Lee Strobel. Were you challenged with what you heard? Let us know. Email us at mystory@calvaryabq.org. And just a reminder, you can give financially to this work at calvaryabq.org slash giving. Thank you for listening to this special message from Calvary Albuquerque.